Welcome to the 16th episode of the official As Began podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is, wherever you are, and you folks who are out there listening. Today's interview is Dr. Jutta Kögelmeier of Great Ormond Street Hospital for Sick Children, located in London. Before we move to speaking with Dr. Kegelmeyer, however, I want to provide you with the Espigan feedback address for these podcasts, which is office at espigan.org. I also want to give a shout out to Selma Ertel, whom you heard just a moment ago, our producer, to Manuel Schuster, our engineer, and to our um, to our mécène, to our sponsor, to the guy who put it all together in the first place, and that's Dr. Jörg Janel of Klagenfurt and Graz. Dr. Kergelmeier, welcome. Thank you. You're here today to talk with us about the use of blended tube feedings as opposed to enteral feeding that uses commercially available mixtures of nutrients. I believe that your opinion is that blended tube feedings for a number of people can be the way to go. Are we moving in that direction? Yes, we are. So blended diet just to explain for those who may have not heard about it, is a term used to describe the process of giving liquidized or blended foods or real table foods into the enteral feeding device of a patient required tube feeding. So that's different, for example, from an orally offered pureed diet or from what you already said, a commercially available standard feed. And Commercially available feeds have been available since the 1960s. Um, they were thought to make the care for children who require supplementary gastrostomy feeding easier. They have uh, defined nutrient content and they have become what is considered the gold standard of feeding these children. However, in recent years, um, it has become much more, I think, fashionable, that or not fashionable, I shouldn't say, I think people have become more interested in healthy eating, alternative foods. And this is what swapped over from, I think, the States, where because of different healthcare system, this method, which is actually not new, before we had these commercially available feeds, and that's what parents were doing, were blending foods that they were just simply preparing for their child have become um, an area of interest again. And I think, I believe, and I hope that will come apparent over the course of this interview, that there is actually some evidence that these blended diets make a difference to some of these children and their families. I have a few questions about tube feeding. Um, tube feeding, blended tube feeding, the blended diet, doesn't that mean that you never get to move far from your blender? How are you going to prepare a blended diet when you're out and about with your child? Oh, there are ways to come around that. So some families may choose when they're out and about, particularly in a younger child, just to use an already blended feed that you can buy off the shelf. 
for example, in, a, in an infant that has just started uh, complementary feeding, you could just get a jar or a pouch that already has a blend in it. Or you can pre-prepare a blend at home. And as long as it's not out in the soaring heat for more than two hours, then like any other food that you would prepare for your child for a picnic, for example, could just travel with you in a rucksack, in a bag. You could have a cold compartment in a cold box. So I think that is relatively easy to overcome and definitely not an obstacle. What about titrating or mixing these non-blended diets with blended diet? In order to get the full good of a blended diet, does it have to be for every meal? It doesn't have to be for every meal. As a matter of fact, the whole point and philosophy of a blended diet is to give families a choice. And for example, many of my families who are using a blended diet for their child actually do a compromise and they have some commercially available feeds which they give to the child mixed with some blends they prepare at home. And there's evidence that they actually also work and have benefits. So you don't have to go for a 100% blended diet with blended table foods. You can use for a compromise. You can opt for a compromise. I'm starting to feel convinced, but um, where's, the, where's the evidence that says that this actually helps families? So... I think if you are a hardcore scientist and you want large randomized control, double-blinded trials, I'm afraid, Alex, I have to disappoint you. So most of the studies are prospective cohort studies, small case studies, expert opinions. And anything that's been studied in the lab has usually focused on a small aspect of the blended diet, like viscosity or tube size. Um, but I think what for me as a physician over the years has become really important is listen to families and the parents out there who are using this diet tell us that it works. So I think both from a medical aspect of their child's problems they have previously encountered when they used the commercially available formula and also from a psychosocial aspect for, for the family. So if you go by reports of medical benefits. Many of these children where blended diets are used, and they're not the sole group who I think will benefit from that, but we can come back to them later, are children with neurodevelopmental problems. So mm -hmm. you're, mm -hmm. let's think of your child with cerebral palsy. Many of these children are wheelchair bound, they have poor abdominal muscle tone, they get constipated, some of them get diarrhea with the feeds, they get reflux. And these children benefit and parents report that reflux is getting better. And there are reports, small case reports, albeit, but that the use of anti-reflux medication and prokinetics has gone down when compared to children on a commercially available feed. Constipation has improved or if children have diarrhea on a commercially available feed, diarrhea has improved. And then other health benefits, which are expert opinions or reports by parents, but I listen to them and they say, you know, at the special needs school, the teacher says he's just more alert. Or I've noticed I have to cut my child's nails more often because they grow better and yeah, the hair is shiny. Right, okay, yeah. okay, okay. And then I, I think... No, I interrupted you, so please do go on. Sorry. <laughs> From a psychosocial benefit, I think many parents 
feel that a commercially available formula is actually a medication. They see it as a medicine. And many of these children have so many other problems. They have seizures, they are on drugs. And then yet, and then on top of that, the family has to give a feed. Some of these feeds smell funny. Yeah, if they are hydrolyzed or amino acid based formula, they just smell funny. Um, I think it's this whole aspect of the child not being integrated into what is actually a very basic aspect of parenting, feeding your child. So if you think our lives evolve around food, we have family gatherings, religious celebrations, business breakfasts, they all inevitably evolve around food. And I think for a parent to get some of this normalization back, this demedicalization of feeding, and also a choice. If I think when I'm asked one of our junior doctors to take bloods from a little toddler, I always say to them, don't go and ask, is it okay if I take blood from you? You, will, you have to go into the room and say, I will now take your blood. Please tell me where you would like me to take it from. So you give choice. And I think choice is control and empowering. And that's what family finds find important. And also little things like if it's birthday, birthday time, another child in the family or the child him or herself has a birthday, even if they may not be able to eat the birthday cake, the simple celebration, including the child in that, giving an occasional treat, I think that makes so much difference to parents. I have to agree with you about the importance of food in being who we are and being with the people who surround us. Even I, who am single, well, as soon as breakfast is over, I start to think about, hey, lunch is coming up. What am I going to have? It really is important. So social interactions, making the child feel part of the family, making the family feel that this is a child like any other and not an irredeemably special child, I understand is likely to be very important. But you do, maybe it's just a matter of not invented here. You referred me to two studies as we prepared for this podcast. Mm -hmm. One of them from Brazil, which is a review of reviews, really, and the other from Australia. The one from Brazil by Schmitz et al. is appeared in the Revista Pediatria, or sorry, Revista Paulista de Pediatria, um, Blenderized Tube Feeding for Children, an Integrative Review. If I, if I summed it up correctly, if I understood it correctly, it said that in 11 articles that they were able to assess, they found that blended diets provided acceptable nutrition and that GI symptoms, hospitalizations, now GI symptoms, that's a bit subjective to be sure, but hospitalizations, that's something you actually can count. Both of those went down. And as you've commented, families said that they were happier. So we've talked about, from your experience, the families actually being happier. What's your experience at Great Ormond Street using blended diets with bringing the kid in for hospitalization? So I think Great Ormond Street is a slightly different setup because we are a quaternary center. So we are a referral center, not just for the southeast and London, for the whole of the country. So I think we are probably the only um, 
standalone children's hospital without an emergency department. So I think for us it may be a little bit different, but okay. we have um, an established clinical networks with other units in London who have an A&E. Um, so I have to say I haven't spoken to these colleagues what um, their experience is with reduced frequency of admissions, but I have read the literature about it where people report that children have less respiratory infections, perhaps because they have less reflux, and maybe perhaps also because generally their immune system is stronger. And there is some evidence to suggest that a blended diet opposite to a commercialized formula, commercialized feeds are heat treated, they're sterilized, blended diet is not sterile. Our food is not sterile. No, it no. has bacteria that it has a, a positive impact on the microbiota in the gut of these mm -hmm. children. And I think in recent years, there has been um, a wealth of, of increased knowledge about the microbiota, the microbiome and human health. So I think perhaps these children are just better in, defend, in, in fighting off infections as well. So I think there is some evidence in the literature to suggest that these children simply come less often to A&E and are admitted less often. I think that was also the, uh, the take-home message from another article that you recommended to me by Chandrasekhar, mm -hmm. appearing in Nutrition. Blenderized tube feeds versus commercial formula, which is better for gastrostomy-fed children? That interested me, I tell you. There were 21 kids given blenderized tube feedings and 20 who were given commercial formula. As with the review of reviews, which appeared before the Chandrasekhar paper, the Chandrasekhar paper being from Australia, um, gastrointestinal symptoms, as assessed by parents, went down. And gastrointestinal inflammation, as assessed by fecal calprotectin, also went down. Now that's that that those are harder data, aren't mm. they? Yeah. Uh, and indeed, the stool microbiome increased in diversity, which ought to mean something good, oughtn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. They blenderized tube feedings provided more calories, and yet, and yet, with a longitudinal assessment. Growth was poorer in the blenderized tube feeding recipients. I wasn't able quite to get my head around that, so I think I'm going to ask you for help. Yeah, I think one has to interpret this result with a pinch of salt. I uh -huh. think what is really needed is to actually look at body composition in these children. Because many children with cerebral palsy um, may actually have increased intra-abdominal fat, so even if the group who was fed with commercialized feed may have on a growth chart look better, actually from, if you like, a body composition point of view, they were actually in a poorer position. So if you have a very simple comparison, you can use a bodybuilder who is maybe, I don't know, six foot and weighs, I don't know what, 90 kilo. And you can use um, an overweight man who is the same height but has less muscle mass they have the same weight but of course their body composition is very 
different. And the bodybuilder, or let's say the athlete, I should say the athlete, not the bodybuilder, has much more lean muscle mass, which is really what we're aiming for. So I think what is really needed, um, and I think that's really where Espegan can help being such a wonderful group of people from Europe in different centers, is to get data together and look at these children. And what we should do is body composition. Because we're not just we're not just aiming for weight gain. We're, mm-hmm. we're aiming for nutritional quality and status that is favorable for the child. I may have misstated. I thought that they talked in that in that article about growth rather than simple weight gain, but I may have I may well have misunderstood that. I think that's what they did. But just just to come back to As that, a I think that's rule. it's how you interpret this data, and and there are, there are other studies that would say completely the opposite, and I think that's the problem with the blended diet, that I think most or most people who are dealing with children who have neurological problems. I also am actually an intestinal failure rehabilitation consultant. I deal with children mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who have short gut, and some of these children are very orally aversive, and there is limited data to suggest that in those children, if they're not eating, that a blended diet opposite to a commercially available formula may also be beneficial. And I think that's what we need. We need to have um, good studies. We need to have maybe a register for these children in Europe Mm -hmm, to see mm -hmm. what happens to them, what happens to them in the long run, and what are the long-term outcomes. But I think the data we have, which is mostly not robust data, is very promising. Well, as a physician, you often have to turn over the management of such patients on the day-to-day basis to our colleagues who are dietitians. And you sent me a dietitian's handbook, how to make the blended tube diet, blended feed diet, excuse me, work for you and for your patients. Um... Are we going to? Are we outsourcing management of these patients? Let's put it this way: If you put a patient who's doing okay on a commercial enteral feeding, and you start to switch her or him over to a blended diet, how closely do you have to follow that child to make sure that he or she isn't starting to lag, that things are going all right, that? That in a British family in particular, that they're not just putting chip buddies. Chip buddies, for those of you who don't speak British English, are bread and butter with French fries between them. Lord in heaven, that they're not just putting those into the blender and putting them down the tube. Well, in defense of the British diet, and I'm German and I lived half my life in England, there's also wonderful British food (laughs) and very healthy British food. But I know what you mean. And well, first of all, the, the document you're referring to is the practice toolkit of the British Association of Dietitians, and that's a wonderful document that was published in November 2021. And anyone interested in the topic, I would really recommend to read it. And I can only congratulate them to have done that. I think if I understood you correctly, you said if a child is stable on a commercial feed, if the Doing parents adequately choose the chance, happy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think if the child is well and stable, uh-huh. then there is no real reason to from a medical point unless the family chooses to. And that brings us back to what I said in the beginning. I think it should be parental choice. And I think particularly at the beginning when a family is unfamiliar with a blended diet, it's really important that the dietitian is closely involved. 
Um, and it depends on the level of understanding of the family. So I think the dietitian should do a risk assessment at the beginning, talk the family through the pros and cons of a blended diet, what it involves, um, and then assess also, you know, what is the family's understanding, portion sizes, what type of blender could they afford? I mean, generally speaking, one would recommend uh, one of the high range blenders, which are inevitably very expensive. Um, because that would get um, the consistency of the blends, the particle size down to a level where one would be happy to give it through a gastrostomy that the gastrostomy doesn't block. But there mm -hmm. are some families who cannot afford it. But actually, in reality, I had families who used a mid-range blender or even one of those handheld things you get from a supermarket for five ninety nine. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's actually not necessarily the quality of the blender. I think it's the blending time that's people looked actually looked at that in in the lab. And I think it's important to blend for at least a couple of minutes. And the longer you blend, the smoother the consistency. And they're actually seeing that high range blenders actually had a thicker viscosity than the cheap blenders. Perhaps also if you if you've ever had that one of those hand stick blenders, you you just have to add more water, more liquid to get it mm -hmm, smooth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As a, but I think that's important. And then I think the dietitian should also talk the family through any potential complications. So what do you do if the tube blocks seven o'clock at night on a Friday evening when you just have a skeleton crew in the hospital who doesn't know the child, which is often the case. So I think it depends what device they have to. They have a balloon gastrostomy, so a low profile gastrostomy, which if that blocks can be easily changed by a community nurse or the parents could be taught to change it themselves. If they have a disc device, so if the gastrostomy is held in place with a more permanent disc, then I think parents have to be aware um, what should they do if the tube blocks? There has to be a contingency plan in place. What should be done then? And I think in agreement with the health professionals looking after the child, so the general pediatrician, the general practitioner, the community nurse, um, if the child goes for respite to a hospice or the school, I think they all need to be informed. And that's where the dietitian has a really important role. And of course, supervising that the diet is adequate in macro and micronutrients and fluid. This is a complex business to set up. Do you at GOS have a team in place to handle so we, all this? So we do now. Um, we actually worked very hard to get um, a service operating procedure in place. It took, I think, a couple of years and it's in place now where we are allowed to continue blended diet in the hospital. Um, believe it or not, when our children came and they came with blends from home, um, not too long ago, they were not allowed to continue or the parents had to sign a big form and bring food in themselves. Now they're allowed to continue a blended diet and the blends will come up from the diet kitchen for the parents to give. Wow. But unfortunately, we're not allowed to start yet. But um, I'm the kind of person I always think the glass is half full, not half empty. And Rome wasn't built in one day. So I think I'm really happy we've got that in place. And I think that's a starting point you can work with continue to to work on i've learned a lot from this and i've enjoyed the learning which <laughs> um thank you very much for this but now i need to talk with you a little bit about yourself yeah let's see you come from trussingen yes 
Trossingen is, and I've been doing my wiki work, <laughs> Trossingen is a town of, is it 12,000? Yeah. 12,000 at the edge of the Black Forest. And as you said to me the other day, it's famous for manufacturing. Now, this might be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on if you've ever had a child who has a harmonica. But if you have a harmonica, it came from Trossingen, almost certainly. What an amazing industrial niche. And I can, I can only imagine what it's like in parades through the city center with everybody either on an accordion or on a harmonica. Or have I just made that up? <laughs> um, no, I think um, Trossingen, so we, Trossingers, we call it the Stadt der Musik, the town of music, because uh -huh. music is really a big theme in Trossingen. We've got a musical college. At the grammar school I went to, you can have an emphasis on music. And I think there are only three grammar schools in Baden-Württemberg, which is the state uh, uh -huh, where Trossing uh -huh, is, is uh -huh. in, where that is possible. Um, and they always say, if you're born in Trossing and you're born with a harmonica stuck to your bum. <laughs> so that's true to a degree. And it's funny, my husband is British and he always laughs about the umtata music. <laughs> Can you yourself play the harmonica? Um, actually not, believe it or not. I play the flute and the piano. <laughs> okay, so an, an outlier in terms of being a Trossingerin. But after, well, you left Trossinger. Because in the lottery that was in place in the German educational system at the time, you were assigned a medical school position in the Saarland. I did. Now, I, I've also gone to a, wiki, to a wiki about the Saarland. And the Saarland is a bit of its German territory now as the result of a referendum and a, an incorporation that took place in the late 50s. But before that, it was a piece of France. There used to be commercials on British TV saying, what would our lives as Britons be like if Napoleon had won? The answer, of course, was that we would not have people in flat caps watching greyhound races, but instead watching poodle races. Or we would have the British cuisine about which we've spoken <laughs> would be the envy of the universe. And of course, British men would be the best in all the world at making love. So when you went to the Saarland, how French was it? I think it's, it's German with savoir vivre. Oh, so they're very laissez-faire relaxed, but they have, without wanting to sound arrogant, they have the, the German position. Uh -huh. with the French attitude. But that was actually no news to me because the part of Germany where I was brought up actually borders with the Alsace uh -huh. and then the opposite Switzerland. <laughs> uh -huh. And then Austria is also not far away, just across the Lake of Constance. So crossing borders from the part of the world where I was brought up is pretty normal. And I enjoyed that Savoie River. Um, Saarbrücken is a beautiful city. I would recommend people to go there, the St. Johanna Markt, drink a glass of wine from the Saarland in the summer, enjoy the nice food and just the atmosphere and the people. I'm going to take you from there to the question of, and yet with all of, the, with all of this familiarity with the French background and Savoie-Vivre, you chose, unlike Dr. Remmele, with whom we spoke a little while ago, to not to 
take a career path in France, but to come to the United Kingdom. How did that happen? So when I qualified, um, Germany was allegedly producing too many doctors, oh. um, which has changed completely. I think now it's really easy to get a job as a doctor in Germany. Uh -huh. So if you're looking, if you're a young person, go to Germany. But um, and. I wanted to do pediatrics and pediatrics, ops and gynae, anesthetics were really popular specialities. So that was already difficult. And I thought, well, why not go abroad for six months, see something else? And a friend of mine was um, very much an England fan. And they were literally going into the medical schools at that time, advertising jobs for housemen. I thought, oh, England, Miss Marple, ladies on bicycles, headscarves, <laughs> nice. So there we were, two little girls. Um, and we said, let's go for six months. And I think there was, I believe in that the forces above me involved, they wanted me to be in England. It was really the, the best decision I made in my life. I started on the adult liver unit in Birmingham in my first house job. The second house job um, was in adult gastroenterology in amongst all places, Blackpool. And then I went to, to Manchester to do Pete's surgery and Pete's gastro in my first SHO job went to Yorkshire and then came for my grid rotation to London. And it's it's really been the best thing for me. I have my husband here, my family, and I'm a child of two countries now. I consider my, I'm German. I think if it came to an ultimate decision, if the good Lord at the gate of heavens would have to say Germans left, British right, okay, I would have to go left, but I'm actually both. I'm German and British. I think that life in Britain would have been perfect for me if they'd only had Tevost. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful delicacy, but I'm sure there, are there must be delicatessens in London, which you can buy it now. So that poses the question of, in choosing a song to share with us, a song from your native country, possibly in your native language, what have you found? Well, I chose another German who became a Londoner. He's oh. actually buried in Westminster Abbey next to Charles Dickens, Georg Friedrich Händel. But no Händel way. had the uh -huh. same problem as I do. They could uh -huh. not pronounce or write his umlaut. And he has also an association with Great Ormond Street because he was the benefactor of the Foundling Hospital, so London's first home for abandoned children. And his concert raised thousands of pounds for the hospital. And the Foundling Museum is actually just... 200 yards away from Great Ormond Street. And on my way to work every morning, I go through the Handel Street, as I call it. They left the two dots on the A out. So I always think one night in the cover of the night, I must come with my step ladder and a permanent marker pen and just <laughs> add the two dots, maybe on the day I retire. <laughs> so and I chose um, the fireworks music because when I did my Physikum, which is the big exam German medical students do between the preclinical and the clinical years. A friend of mine went and I, we went to Paris and we were in Versailles and we were fortunate enough, it was sheer coincidence that all the fountains were on. And in the evening there were fireworks and they played Handel's fireworks music. So I thought that was quite fitting. That is a grand choice and I'm glad that you've shared it with us.
If you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our SBGAN playlist. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Folks, we've heard Dr. Jutta Kögelmeier of Great Ormond Street tell us about blended tube feedings and why they should be among the things that you offer your, your patients who require enteral feeding. Thank you again. Thank you so much. <laughs>